new leaders come and go, new CEOs come and go, but like John Harris is there to sort of bookend his time, it would seem. He seems to be truly sort of excited and invigorated by that opportunity. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, July 21st. Today, Dylan Byers is here to talk about a big leadership change at Politico, which is elevating its OG editor, John Harris, to the company's top position. Politico, though, is no longer just an upstart politics website. It's a global newsroom owned by Axel Springer. So what does the Harris move mean for its ambitions? Dylan also has the latest on how new management is being received at The Washington Post and CNN, two other media organizations with new faces in charge. We'll discuss all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome to the powers that be, everybody. Happy Friday. I know we like to do Media Monday, but today we're doing a little Media Friday with Dylan Byers. and We're going to talk Politico. The Washington Post, CNN, what's going on behind the scenes? Dylan, welcome. Happy Friday. Happy Friday, Peter. Thank you for having me. Uh, Of course. Thank you for joining me on this lovely Zoom call. (laughs) I want to start with some pretty big news out of Politico. It was announced this week by Politico that Matt Kaminsky, who's been at Politico for about a decade and has been editor-in-chief for about four years, uh, will be stepping down from his role. And John Harris, the OG co-founder of Politico going back to 2007 with Jim Vandehei, will be stepping into a new role at the top of the top called Global Editor-in-Chief. Harris has been doing a bunch of different jobs at Politico over the years since Vandehei left. Uh, He's been writing a column. He's been dabbling in all sorts of corners of the company. Dylan, what does this new job mean for him? What will he be doing exactly? And how is it likely to change Politico? Or is it more likely to take it back? Well, I I would say that at the macro level, I think it's very indicative of where Politico is and what it hopes to become under the relatively new ownership of Axel Springer. One really interesting thing about like the sort of Politico story, which I have covered for a long time by virtue of having also been there for about four years, is that, you know, there were these early disruptive halcyon days when Politico was changing the tone and tenor and metabolism of American political Mm -hmm. journalism. And it had Jonathan Martin and Maggie Haberman and Ben Smith and so on and so forth. And those were really exciting, heady days. And then once it got through that sort of startup fervor and became an Mm -hmm. institution in its own right, 
it was sort of perpetually dogged by narratives about drama and turmoil and chaos, some of which I will concede I wrote. <laughs> but, you know, it's like, it just, so John Harris was one co-founder, the other was Jim Vandehye. Jim Vandehye and Mike Allen and their team abruptly left the company amid a split with the owner and, and to a degree with Harris and went off and started Axios. And then you've got drama around like Susan Glasser, who, you know, brilliant mind, but not the most beloved leader. And then you've got the guys who took over Playbook, the congressional reporters, Jake Sherman, Anna Palmer, Bresnahan. They go off and they start Punchbowl, which sort of immediately, overnight almost, seems to like usurp Politico's claim on Capitol Hill. And... The funny thing is that all the while while this is happening and while talent seems to be sort of, you know, notable talent keeps leaving and it doesn't seem to be a sort of terribly exciting place to work anymore and is sort of becoming one of the institutions that it had initially set out to disrupt, all the while it is actually becoming a very profitable, very sustainable business that then two years ago gets sold to Axel Springer for a billion dollars, which makes it without question one of the most successful, if not the most successful digital news startups of its generation. And what's so fascinating to me is like all the while new leaders come and go, new CEOs come and go, but like John Harris is there sometimes in a very noticeable way, sometimes in a ba- in the background as sort of this like sage leader who, who writes the occasional column. Whatever the case, he's there and he sticks through it. And now, now that Axel Springer has taken it over and Axel Springer has real ambitions that its founding owner, Robert Albritton, did not have to make it a truly global publication with like, not just a U.S. arm and a Brussels arm, but like many European arms and like a thriving Brussels and London and Paris and Berlin business. And it's opening a new California business. It is it has actually arrived finally after these 15, 16 years at a point where there is at least potential to once again get back into that hyper aggressive competitive growth mode And Harris is there to sort of bookend his time, it would seem, by having another turn at the wheel, like taking another crack at this. And he seems to me in my conversations with him this week, he seems to be truly sort of excited and invigorated by that opportunity. Now, there are a lot of questions here, like, can you actually get back to that sort of like scrappy mentality if you are now a sort of global behemoth of a company with not 60, but like 650 employees, um, those are some of the outstanding questions for sure. But I do think that Politico is once again, after years of sort of becoming sort of one of the institutions of Washington and, and frankly, sort of like boring and sleepy when compared to what it was in its earliest days, I do think it has arrived at this moment where it does have an opportunity to be sort of exciting again and to tell a different story and to write a new chapter for itself. And I see a lot of wind at its back again. And having written so many times about Politico's sort of the chaos and the turmoil, it's nice to see it starting to tell this story. 
Yeah, and, and I realize you say that as a, as a Politico alum. Jeremy Barr interviewed Harris for the Washington Post earlier this week, and Harris said, quote, there are really cool opportunities in front of us, and I found myself interested in them, curious about them, and passionate about them in ways that I haven't felt in a long, long time. I am more interested in the place and its future than I have been for a while. Look, you're right. They might be not the rebellious startup anymore, but you, you might not be as cool but you don't need to be cool to be a big successful business, <laughs> you know? And they no, are like no, sort of slept true. on as this like successful business. The other note I would say is like, and I, I've always looked up to Harris in part because he used to be uh, bureau chief in Richmond for the Washington Post. And I'm a Richmond guy and he covered Doug Wilder back in the day. His book about Bill Clinton, The Survivors, like one of my favorite political books. And he's like, if you had to think about Vandehei and Harris, like just on a very superficial level, you would always think Vandehei is like the hustler entrepreneur business guy, despite having really good reporting chops too. I'm not saying he doesn't. And then Harris was more of like the wise man, the like more like writerly mentor type, at least from my outside yeah, perspective. That's right. Um, and that's maybe right. it's like you don't need at this point for Politico and frankly for a lot of news organizations digitally. I mean, you don't need like necessarily like a huge like product mind or tech mind at the top of these news organizations. You need really good editors and journalists because like there's only so many innovations at this point that are breaking through besides like distributing your content across different platforms and creating video. Like there's, you know, you know what I'm saying? Or maybe I'm just like, yeah, it's a half-baked thought, but it kind of feels like the infrastructure is there. The tech is there. The money is there. So just like double down on the journalism. And so in that sense, Harris, who has such a foothold and goodwill at the place and is a really purebred journalist, might just be the right guy. And maybe his thoughts are right. He's never been excited. Yeah. And I, I, I think that's right. And I think that you can achieve success on paper financially and also just sort of in terms of the power of the brand you know, you create a sustainable model, they've got a very lucrative subscription business, and then you sort of continue to do the things that make Politico sort of habit forming mm -hmm. in the minds of the DC crowd, the Brussels crowd, and all of that is well and good. And that is, as you say, like that is its own form of success, which again, you go back to that $1 billion price tag is undeniable. I think the thing that has been missing in Harris's mind for a while is the things that Politico was initially known for, which is like impact and influence, right? And while it might be enough in terms of the profit margin and the paycheck to say, you know what, the journalism we do is good and responsible and it has an audience, there's still something missing there if you are somebody who loves that sort of feeling of, as Politico put it in some of those early mantras, you love driving the conversation, you love winning the morning. And for all of Politico's success, that is not something that it necessarily does every day anymore. And in fact, most days it doesn't feel like Politico is, is necessarily like driving the conversation in American politics. I'm less familiar with, with you know their presence in Brussels and in London now. Um, I think they are having some success there. But I do think that, you know, if you're sitting where Harris is sitting, and certainly if you're sitting where Matthias Dopfner, the CEO of Axel Springer, is sitting, mm -hmm. it's not enough to be in the black. It's not enough to be turning a profit. Like, you want to be like the driving agenda setting force 
in political journalism. I think for John Harris, that's still largely, even though he's going to have this global oversight, I think his primary obsession remains Washington politics, the 2024 campaign. If you are Matthias Dopfner, I think you're thinking about that in terms of democracies across the world, primarily in Europe and also in the United States. And there's a desire to like, it's, it's again, it's more than just the annual earnings. It's actually like the reputation of the place and the feeling that you are like in the zeitgeist. And the story of media in the digital era is so much about these things that come around and capture the zeitgeist for a while, but don't necessarily build sustainable models, right? Whether we're talking about like a BuzzFeed or a Vice or a Vox. And Politico was this thing that actually captured the zeitgeist got really successful and boring for a while. And I think, I'm not sure, but but I think has the opportunity to sort of be exciting again in a sort of weird, global, responsible, you know, sort of like economist on steroids type way. And if they do that, they will be able to tell yet another success story, I think, that most people don't get to tell. And we should note, in terms of conversation driving, they did get that big scoop about the Dobbs decision and were named a Pulitzer finalist. Yeah, but so here's my question about that. When they published that, and we all clicked on it, right? Was there a part of you (laughs) which was like, oh, Politico. And I don't mean this to dismiss all of the great work that Politico's journalists do on a day-in and day-out basis, but like for, for the general audience... Politico driving like all of the coverage across CNN and MSNBC and the New York Times and the Washington Post. Mm-hmm. I hadn't right. really felt that in a meaningful way in a very long time. And so I think that there's a real desire there to be back in the center of the conversation on a more regular mm-hmm. basis. Mm-hmm. Fair point. Uh, Dylan, I'll take a quick break. We come back, I want to ask you about leadership changes at two other places, the Washington Post and CNN, and how those have been playing out in recent weeks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Welcome back to The Powers That Be, everybody. We're talking about the story behind the story at Politico, The Washington Post, and CNN. Dylan, recently Fred Ryan was, you know, basically pushed out of The Washington Post as publisher and CEO, and he was replaced by a former Microsoft executive um, named Patty Stonecipher, who apparently, according to your reporting in a previous podcast we did on this topic, is really well-liked at The Post. That was a few months ago. How are things going with her at the helm? Uh, You know, I think one 
notable development is that I am not hearing anything out of the Washington Post, which usually <laughs> tells me that things are probably going okay. Uh, usually, when people leak, it's because they've got an axe to grind, or or because they you know they're deeply um, discontent with the state of affairs. Patty Stone Cipher came into a lot of goodwill, and I think there was a general sense people had they were happy that the Fred Ryan era was ending. But I also think they saw in her a trusted Bezos lieutenant and somebody who sort of instantly seemed to demonstrate that she was going to be a responsible steward of this company for however long she was the interim chief. Mm-hmm. And she's she's made two notable moves very quickly that I think are, are rather significant. If you remember, one of the big frustrations with Fred Ryan's leadership was not just that he had sort of like let the post churn subscribers or fall behind the New York Times or failed to make big acquisitions like, you know, Wordle or whatever. It was also that there was this real flight of talent, not just on the editorial side, but on the business side. And they had these really revered people, like, for instance, in their uh, Shailesh Prakash and their, their chief technology officer who had left for a different job. And there were myriad examples of that on the business side. So in recent weeks, uh, Patty Stonecipher has made two very notable hires. She has hired a new CTO in Vinit Kosla, and then she's also hired a new chief revenue officer in Alex McCallum. Both of these people, from the f- folks I've spoken with, are widely respected for what they do and seen as being very good at what they do. And I think this sort of, after enduring you know a few years where Fred Ryan seemed to be dragging his feet on everything... To have someone come in and to be moving fast while also putting a steady hand on the wheel, I think, is a source of reassurance for a lot of people. Now, there's still a hell of a lot of work to be done. I certainly don't see, like, you know, there's there's a lot that needs to be done, particularly with recruitment, I think, on the editorial side. But by and large, things are finally moving in the right direction. And I think people are sort of, people at the Post are, at least for the moment, feeling more bullish about what their future looks like. I just had Google up and was doing some backgrounding on Stone Cipher because I hadn't really thought of her until we talked about it today. I didn't know she's married to Michael Kinsley, uh, which explains her uh, connections to the the chattering classes. She's not just a yes. random Microsoft executive from Seattle. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, last thing I want to ask you, Chris Licht has been gone from CNN for a couple months now. You know, they have their interim leadership team in place. Uh, Caitlin Collins is hosting a 9 p.m. show now after the morning show fell apart called The Source. And Dylan, you know, I was watching CNN actually on Tuesday because Trump was made known that he's the target of probably another indictment. Jake Tapper interviewed Ron DeSantis, which was, you know, Ron's first interview really outside of the conservative media bubble in a very long time. They had a panel on after that interview and some friends texted me that they hadn't really watched CNN for a while and they wanted to tune in to see DeSantis and they were like, wait, so what changed? This feels like kind of like it did under Jeff Zucker, like other than the sort of like lower thirds and the fonts at the bottom of the screen, the whole like all in political coverage of Trump and then this big political interview followed by a political panel, it felt very like Zucker era CNN. What, what's your read on how things are going over there? Are people calm down and content and just sort of knuckling down and heading into the 
election year feeling good or is there still a lot of uncertainty? Well, look, I think there's the the relief is still certainly there. And I think one thing that we're seeing on our television screens is that CNN once again feels comfortable in its own skin. Right. I mean, I think that the, the, ta- the on air talent certainly isn't sort of like second guessing itself and wondering if it's doing right in the eyes of, you know, Chris Licht and above him, you know, Zaslav and John Malone. I think they feel like they can go out and just do the work they're supposed to do. And that is comforting. In terms of how they're feeling about the future, I think there's a lot that's still uncertain. You know, one thing that happened, you mentioned Caitlin Collins. There are decisions that got made during the course of, of Chris Lick's year that did not necessarily get undone. One of those was moving Caitlin Collins to primetime. And what I've sort of noticed in the last few weeks is, you know, so often on Twitter, I will see that CNN has like some big scoop on the political front that was either led by Caitlin Collins or that she was a part of the reporting team on that. And that is really where I think her strengths lie. It seems so far that she still has yet to find her footing in primetime behind the desk. And the ratings bear that out. I mean, her her ratings are down significantly from what the 9 p.m. hour used to be in its last iteration under Cuomo. That might be an apples and oranges comparison. But she's drawing significantly less viewers than, than MSNBC, too. I mean, there's no real sign yet that that show has taken off. And... I, you know, I think this is one of those things where it's like, would there be an argument to maybe getting her back to just focusing on her strong suit, which is really the reporting, and maybe not staying committed to this vision that Chris Licht had of putting her in prime time, because that doesn't really seem to be working. I think the other thing that that's sort of on my radar, which I'm just starting to hear some grumblings about, is... When Chris Licht left, Warner Brothers Discovery put in place a sort of three-headed or four-headed leadership structure without one clear Zucker-like figure to lead the company. And I am starting to hear and see the ways in which that is generating some sort of confusion and, uh, and some power struggles inside the organization, that w- that will the, the ramifications of which we probably won't see for some time, mm-hmm. but... That immediately was like the alarm bells went off when that leadership structure was announced because many of the veteran media executives and people with experience in this industry say, like, you need to have one person who is calling the shots. And I wasn't totally convinced that was true. It seemed like all of these people get along well enough. But it does sort of seem now that in order to move CNN into not just the post-licked era, but whatever the new era is and whatever is going to define that era, you do need one person leading this organization. And there seems to be no indication that David Zaslav wants to name a new top CEO or president anytime soon. So that's something I'll be keeping my eye on. All right, Dylan, thanks so much, buddy, for filling us in. Have a great weekend and uh, don't get too hot here in Los Angeles. (laughs) All right, Peter, you too. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you on Monday.
This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.